Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 this morning. As is always the case, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, and I always encourage you to do that, but if you didn't, there's one there in front of you somewhere, and you're welcome to use that and even take it if you need one. Matthew chapter 21, we'll start reading in verse number 1. As soon as I hear the rustling, die away. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say that the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this wonderful uh, account that we have of what took place here on Palm Sunday. So I pray as, uh, as we uh, look at it for just these few moments. First of all, Lord, you'd fill me with your spirit. Forgive me of anything that would hinder my usefulness today. Uh, help me, Lord, to just preach as I should. and uh, Enable me to say the things that are right and protect me from saying anything I ought not. And I pray for all of us, Father, that we'd be filled with your spirit to hear, that uh, we would uh, be open to your word this day. Open hearts and open minds, open ears. And Lord, I pray if there are those here today who need something from this very specifically, you'll apply it to their heart, and that we would all leave this place knowing we have a response that is required to these things. And so we, may we respond appropriately. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we read this passage just about every uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, if not this one, one of the parallel passages in one of the, uh, one of the other Gospels. And for very nearly 2,000 years, the Church of Jesus Christ has done the very same thing. Because something momentous happened on that Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem atop a donkey. Now, when I say that, it sounds almost comic, doesn't it? Jesus rode into Jerusalem atop a donkey. But the people who were there that day didn't think that at all. They saw nothing comic about it. 
they spread garments and branches in front of him as he rode down the slope of the Mount of Olives and then in through the eastern gate into Jerusalem. Every time that I read this story, I can see that path that he followed down there because having been there, and I can see that gate into which he entered. People shouted out phrases that might seem strange to our ears. We always use that word, Hosanna, uh, on this particular day every year. Uh, But it was a very important statement. Hosanna. It's a word that means save us, or perhaps more specifically means save now. They referred to Jesus as the son of David, which had a very real reference to the Messiah, to the promised king uh, of Israel. And so it's an interesting scene. It's an interesting account that we do look at every year on Palm Sunday. But today I want to be very specific in how we deal with it. I don't want to talk about the donkey. I'm not going to talk about the donkey today. Uh, I don't want to talk about the palm branches. We have palm branches, and that's something we do every year. I don't want to talk about the coats that are strewn on the ground. I don't want to talk about the disciples who were in front of and around as the donkey wended its way through the streets. I don't want to think so much about the people's shouts. I don't want to spend thinking about the fact that just hours and days after this tumult had died down, They followed their leaders in rejecting him. I mean, I might touch on some of those things as we go through, and we'll touch on them over the next couple of days. They're all details that bear our study. I encourage you to think about them and read these things through this week. But today, I want to talk about one thing, and that's the man. I want to talk about the man who was seated atop that donkey. And I want us to think about him, and I want us to ask ourselves, who exactly was this who rode into Jerusalem that day? atop that donkey. Now, as I was preparing this message, I researched that particular topic, and I asked several sources and looked at several sources to determine who was Jesus. I, for example, asked Siri. I've come away from this thinking Siri is probably not saved. Siri said, (laughs) Siri's response when I said, uh, hey, Siri, who is Jesus? I better be careful. My phone might wake up. She said this, Jesus, also referred to as Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus Christ, was a first century Jewish preacher and religious leader. He is the central figure of Christianity and is widely described as the most influential person in history. Most Christians believe he is the incarnation of God the Son and the awaited Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. That's pretty good. Except she was speaking in the third person there. She didn't say, I believe. She said, most Christians believe. So Siri's got some work to do. I thought about Muslims. Muslims are much in the news in our day and age. What do Muslims believe about Jesus? Just the other day, I came across another car in front of me in there somewhere, had that stupid coexist bumper sticker on the back of it, which is just ridiculous. It's not possible. If you understand what these other groups believe, you cannot possibly believe that's possible. But anyway, let me, let me not get off on that. What do the Muslims believe? Who do they say Jesus is? I found uh, a quote from somebody. It said this, in Islam... Jesus is one of the five greatest messengers of God who are collectively known as the Ol al azam I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, or the possessors of steadfastness. Jesus is also a real person who lived in Roman Judea in the first century of the Common Era. Muslims share with Christians most of the basic outlines of Jesus' story, though there are certainly differences. In Islam, as well as in Christianity, Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary and was without a father. But for Muslims, Jesus is neither God nor the Son of God. So they don't believe the same as we do. How about, what about Hinduism? The Hindus say Jesus is. Most would say he was a holy man. He was a 
wise teacher and maybe even a god. One person said some Hindus are more than willing to acknowledge Jesus as divine if he is not seen as uniquely divine. Hindus worship many gods and goddesses, and some are eager to include Jesus in their list of deities. They don't, however, see Jesus as the only way to God. Instead, some understand Jesus as the perfect example of self-realization, the goal of Hindu dharma. Many Hindus see Jesus as a symbol of what humans can attain rather than a true historical person. He is divine in his modeling, if not in his nature, and he is not the only such model. While some Hindus may see Jesus as a God-man of sorts, they would also cite other examples such as Rama, Krishna, and Buddha. Jesus is simply one of many Ishtas. What about Buddhism? Buddhism would go so far as to say Jesus was enlightened, that he was a wise teacher, even perhaps a holy man. But not God. And there's lots of opinions today that we could, and we could go on and on and on with this. Lots of different religions, lots of different beliefs that people have about just who this was that was sitting atop the donkey on Palm Sunday. And there were lots of opinions on this day when he rode through Jerusalem. Lots of opinions as our text reveals. But, but do opinions really matter? Do we really care what anybody else really thinks? I mean, if I were to stand up here today and give you my opinion of who was atop that donkey, would you really care? Would you really find that interesting? I doubt that you would. Uh, you might nod your head at the things you agreed with, but it would not be something that would change your life. Opinions are not very important. Leonardo da Vinci said the greatest deception which men incur proceeds from their opinions. Harlan Ellison said that uh, you are not entitled to your opinion. You are entitled to your informed opinion. No one is entitled to be ignorant. I like that one. We ought to write that one down. Our politicians need that one. Arnold Glasso said, the fewer the facts, the stronger the opinion. But John Calvin nailed it best. John Calvin said, inquire not what are the opinions of anyone, but inquire what is truth. And that's all that matters, right? And that's what we want to look at here today, the truth. What is the truth about who this man was that was on top of that donkey? And Jesus answered the question, what is truth? In John chapter 17 and verse 17, he said, your word is truth. He said, the Bible is the truth. And so all that matters is what the Bible teaches on this. So all that long, rambling stuff to say, I want to find out this morning what the Bible says about that man who sat atop that donkey. Can we do that for just the next couple of minutes? What does the Bible say about who was on that donkey? Well, it says two things. Maybe some others, but two we're going to look at this morning. First of all, it said a king was on that donkey. A king. A king. You know, many try to set dates about prophecy. Have you ever noticed that? I lived in southern Ohio in 1988. I remember receiving a copy of Edgar Wiesnant's book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Anybody else receive a copy of that book back then in 1988? You know, I looked it up. It is astonishingly still available on Amazon. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I think it's also freely available on, on the Internet, so I don't know why you would ever buy it, but maybe you just want to have it as a collector's item. But I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't fathom that it was there, so I started looking down through the reviews of, of this book on Amazon, and I came across this particular gem. This one was posted on September 17, 2013. This person said, 
A lot of people say you can't know when the rapture will be, but this book spells it out clearly. Laugh if you want, but when October 1988 comes around, I'll be ready. Oh, wait a minute. And sadly, most of the reviews were like that. I'm sure Wiesnott did not intend for his booklet to provide ammunition for unbelievers to use in ridiculing the prophecy of the rapture. But it did just that. You see, Jesus warned against setting dates. The purpose of the study of prophecy is not to set dates, but to encourage urgency and diligence and, and, and preparing. Jesus said, be ye therefore ready. That was his constant point whenever he would talk about something prophetic. Be ye therefore ready, not so that you would set dates. But Jesus also did encourage something else about prophecy. He encouraged people to watch the signs of the times. And as they increasingly pointed to his return, to increasingly look forward to it. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors, Matthew twenty four thirty three. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand, Luke twenty one thirty one. I say all that to point out that there were many prophecies that the Jews had been taught over and over. They were waiting for their coming king. They knew the prophecies that pertained to him. And one such prophecy is mentioned right here in verse number 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9. So I want you to imagine, if you would, just for a moment, the Bible students of the day. Because they were certainly there. The religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, were people of the book. They studied the Bible. They knew what the Bible said, and they no doubt had knowledge of Zechariah's words. And so what must have run through their mind as they're sitting there going about their daily business? And all of a sudden, this insane ruckus breaks through outside on, on the street, and they go out and look, and here comes. They, what do they see? What do they see? They see someone coming, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was a complete, total, in every detail, fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And that detail would not have been lost on the religious leaders of the day because they knew their Bibles. Their indignant and appalled reaction, I read down to verses 15 and 16 so you'd see that. It said they were indignant. That reaction heaps up evidence that they knew exactly what they were witnessing, that they understood exactly what Jesus was saying to them. He was saying to them, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. He was saying to them, I am the king. And they were indignant at that. I could almost paraphrase their thoughts right there. They were saying, who's this guy think he is? How could he possibly do this? Come into this town and declare himself to be king. So who was on that donkey that day? If we take all those things together, we see one thing is clear. There was a king atop that donkey, a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. But there was even something more striking than that. There was a Messiah and a Savior atop the donkey on that day. Now, I mentioned that book earlier, The 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And some of you said that you had received that book. So I always wondered, was that a local phenomenon or did they really send them all over the country? I, I never really knew. But you know what? You don't need to go back that far to see examples of folks uh, doing the same thing. Perhaps you remember this one. And let me just read an article here. In 2011, 
a warning by a U.S. preacher, Harold Camping, that the rapture would happen that year on May 21st, 2011, prompted many followers of his evangelical ministry to quit their jobs and sell everything they owned. Camping's Christian media empire spent millions of dollars to warn about the rapture on thousands of billboards around the country. There were some on Route 76 right around us here. When May 21st came and went raptureless, Camping said that he had gotten the day wrong and that it would happen five months later. Then he said he realized that the significant day would not involve any physical manifestation, but a spiritual kind of judgment day. Camping, who died in 2013 at the age of 92, gave up prophecies shortly after his failed prediction. We realize that many people are hoping they will know the date of Christ's return, Camping wrote in March 2012. We humbly acknowledge we were wrong about the timing. You don't even have to go back that far. You know, there's actually a guy right now, right now, who is predicting that this coming April 23rd is the day of the rapture. That is, by the way, what is it, eight days from now? Are you ready? Are you ready? David Mead is a numerologist. Mead based the April 23rd coming of the rapture on the premise that the sun, moon, and Jupiter, which supposedly represents the Messiah, will be in Virgo. Virgo is said to represent the woman from the biblical passage. Now, I'm not, I'm not mentioning these things in any way. You, you probably think I am, but I, I'm not mentioning these things to make you doubt the validity of the rapture. Not at all. It is coming. It is imminent. It could very well be April 23rd. It could very well be before I get the next sentence out of my mouth, which you're all saying I hope it is. But, the, you know, the, the Bible is clear that we ought to be watching and we ought to be ready. Would you be ready? I mean, that's, that's a question we need to, to ask. But I, I mentioned these things for a different purpose this morning. I mentioned these things to point out that there are always those who will meticulously study prophecy to try to determine when something is going to occur. And if we don't think there was people back here in this day that were doing the same thing, we're not really thinking very clearly. I, I am certain that there were some Edgar Wiesnots and some... Uh, Campings and people like that uh, in first century Israel as well. These were people who knew Zechariah's prophecy. And my guess is just about every day they'd glance at the gate and see if there was somebody coming through on a donkey yet. Because they were watching for it. They were waiting for it. And there was another prophecy that I'm sure they were very specifically looking for. And it's a very, very specific prophecy. How many of you have ever attended one of Brother Carl's? Revelation or Daniel classes. How many in here? Yeah, that's what I thought, quite a few. Because if you have attended one of Carl's classes, you've no doubt heard him discuss the prophecies of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, I, I just want to consider one verse from that passage. Gen, Daniel 9.25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Let me read that again. Such an important prophecy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. Would it surprise you to know that there has been intense scrutiny of that prophecy, intense calculations applied to that prophecy, uh, people trying to figure out uh, the dates and the days, and they've done all sorts of math and all sorts of calculations and comparing calendars and things, 
And it can be shown conclusively that the very day Jesus rode into Jerusalem atop that donkey was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Messiah the Prince rode into Jerusalem atop a donkey at the exact day that Daniel, hundreds of years before, had prophesied it would happen. Now, if you want to know more about that, I have a book on my shelf in my office. Uh, it is called um, The Life of Christ by J. Dwight Pentecost, and he includes some pretty uh, amazing calculations in there, which I, I was going to try to share with you today, and I couldn't figure out how to do that without boring you out of your minds. It, it kind of bored me out of my mind, but it was nonetheless amazing. It talks about the fact that uh, there's differences between the Jewish calendar and the Gregorian calendar that we use today. It took into things like leap years and, and all of those kinds of things. It took in the historical evidence of just exactly when the command to restore Jerusalem took place and when Jesus entered in Jerusalem. And it came up with the fact that the absolute number of days, the calculated number of days in that prophecy, if we properly understand what is meant there, is 173,880 days. Now, what's the possibility that Daniel could have hit that target, just as a guess? But he did. He did, 173,880 days after that uh, command was issued to restore Jerusalem. Jesus rode into Jerusalem atop that donkey. Here's, here's what one person said about that. I will read this one. It's a little simpler. He said, the command to restore and build Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes Longimanus on the 1st of Nisan in 445 B.C. When did the Messiah present himself as a king? During the ministry of Jesus Christ, there were several occasions in which people attempted to promote him as king, but he carefully avoided it. John 16:5, mine hour is not yet come, is an example of what he would say. But then one day, he meticulously arranged it. And on this particular day, he rode into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, deliberately fulfilling a prophecy by Zechariah that the Messiah would present himself as king in just that way. And when we examine the period between Nisan 1, 445 B.C., that's middle March, and Nisan 10, 30 A.D., that's early April, and correct for leap years, we discover it is 173,880 days exactly to the very day. That is amazing. That is mind-boggling. It's stupefying. How could it be? Unless it was true. So I ask you this question. Do you suppose that there were any David Meads in the crowd of Jerusalem on that day? Do you suppose there were any Harold Campings or Edgar Wiesnants who were there in Jerusalem on that day? Such no doubt existed. They knew this prophecy, and they knew this day. They had to have known this day was upon them, because they could do the same math. And they were there, and they were watching, and they were no doubt promoting their ideas. I have this strange thought that there might have been billboards. I don't know. Messiah the Prince is coming on such and such a day. Sell everything you have. Some were no doubt camped out and watching for him to show up right on schedule. All that to say here, this. Jesus was openly and blatantly and undeniably declaring himself as the king, as Messiah the Prince. Nobody could, could deny it. It was not lost on anybody there. The religious leaders knew the predictions. They had to know the predictions. And, and rather than be astonished at the fulfillment... They openly rejected it. And the people knew it. At least the majority of the people knew it. 
Somebody, some of them had to know it because they referred to him as the son of David, uh, which, which was, which was a, a saying that he was the king. And, and they used the phrase Hosanna, save now, which indicates they recognized him as the Messiah and the Savior. So who was on the donkey that day? The king was on the donkey that day. Savior was on the donkey that day. And so I want to close with this thought. I want us to think about this. Both of those, both of those names or descriptions tell us about someone who's demanding something from us, demanding a response from us. The king demands a response. The king. I wonder this morning, are we willing to submit to his absolute and total Rule over our lives. That's what a king demands. Jesus is a loving king. (laughs) Gives infinitely more than he requires, but he does require our submission. He is our king. Are you willing to submit to the king? Jesus told a parable one time about a king who went away on business for a long time. It was a description of himself as he was going away uh, and would eventually return. And when he returned, you know what he found? He found his subjects playing He found his subjects not at all engaged or busy in the business of the king. And, of course, there was a payday as a result of that. He was illustrating his departure. He was illustrating that there would be a second coming. And and when he comes back that second time, there will be no doubt that he is the king, the king. So I ask again, are you willing to live in submission to his authority over your life? Or will you be surprised and ashamed when he returns? Because you have been unconcerned and disengaged with the things of the kingdom. When Beth and I were dating many, many years ago, I was a student at Kent State University. Poor as all get out. And uh, I rented an apartment. Actually, I don't think she charged me anything. I think she probably gave it to me. But uh, I, I, I rented an apartment from my grandmother my grandparents in Ravenna, and I did that because I was a bus stop right there. I could get the bus to Kent State real easy, and so I stayed there. One day, my grandparents came up to me, and they said, Billy, because that's what they called me, Billy, we're going away for a few days, so you've got the whole place yourself. Behave yourself. So I thought, oh, nice, nice. I found this opportunity too hard to resist. I mean, as I said, I was dating Beth at the time, and so I thought, I'm going to find some time to spend some time with Beth. I'm going to arrange a fancy dinner. I'm going to redecorate the whole house. And I, I completely, I moved their furniture all around. I did all kinds of things to make this house, you know, look like, I wanted it to look like a restaurant, if I, if I remember my thinking. And I, I took their kitchen and I arranged it all differently. And I had this table with white linen on it and all this. I, I went completely nuts. I really did. And I sat there waiting for Beth to come. She was invited and I heard the door open. And I'm standing in the kitchen waiting to see her walk around the corner and to see this great surprise on her face. And there was my grandparents. And there was only one person with surprise on his face. Actually, they were a little surprised, too. Are you ready to meet the king? Are you living in submission to his authority over your life so that when you come, when he comes, you will not be ashamed? 
you will not be surprised. You'll be ready. I think too many of us, and maybe it's an American thing, I don't know. But I think too many of us presume upon the grace of our King. I came across this excerpt from a Puritan prayer just the other day, and I, I wrote it in my journal. I can't get it out of my head. This Puritan prayed, he said, Of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be an evangelical hypocrite who sins more safely because grace abounds, who tells his lusts that Christ's blood cleanseth them, who reasons that God cannot cast him into hell, for he is saved, who loves evangelical preaching and churches and Christians, but lives unholily. I can't get that out of my mind. May that not describe me. May it not describe you. May we be ready to meet our King. Well, there's another thought, and I close with this one. The Messiah and the Savior also demands a response. The Savior demands a response. So I have to ask the question, will you accept? Will you receive him as your Savior? And I mentioned in this last, but it's really of first importance. It's the most important thing. One week after Jesus rode into Jerusalem and offered himself to the people as their king, one week later, they rejected him. And he offered himself on the cross of Calvary as your Savior and as mine. The people were shouting, save now. And one week after the tumult of Palm Sunday subsided, he did just that. He died to save. He died to save you. So have you accepted that gift? If you haven't, he will wonderfully save you now if you just call out to him. The songwriter says, Come, every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way that leads you into rest. Believe in him without delay, and you are fully blessed. Only trust him. Only trust him. Well, Father, we're thankful for the king that rode into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. We're thankful for the Messiah, the Prince. We're thankful, Lord, for the Savior. We're thankful, Father, for all these things that describe who the man was atop that donkey on that first Palm Sunday. And as we've once again been reminded of what an important day it was, I pray that the most important reminder that's on all of our hearts today is that we need to respond to it. Help us, Father, to respond to it. May it not just be a story to us. May it not just be something that we hear about every year this time. May it be something that we think about, apply to our own hearts, and decide that we're going to respond. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who, uh, when they think about the fact that this is their king, and they look at their life and they realize that they're not living it in conformity to what he would want, then I pray this day, Lord, they would uh, talk to you about it. They'd submit to the king. They'd get things right. They'd do business. They'd confess whatever needs to be confessed, repent of whatever needs to be repented of, and submit to the king. Live for the king. Love the King. Father, I pray if there's any who need to come and as we sing in a moment and kneel at this altar and pray about some of these things, I pray they do so. And Father, I pray if there are those who have not yet responded to the, to the Messiah, to the Savior, then Lord, will they do it today, I pray. May they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this day and be saved. 
May they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. I just pray, Father, no one would leave this place lost. So however we need to respond, and Lord, there may be other things on people's hearts and minds as we sing. I pray all know that the altar is open. They can come and talk to you about anything that needs to be talked about. But uh, just bless the invitation. We give it to you in Jesus' name.